Ah, happy Easter. You can be seated. In the traditional church, ancient greeting, uh, somebody would pass somebody on the road, Resurrection Sunday, and they would say, he is risen, and somebody else would respond with, he is risen indeed. You want to give that a whirl? Want to give it a try? We'll try it. He is risen. And we do that. We remind ourselves this because we're around a lot that isn't going well or maybe as well as we would hoped. And so resurrection, life, and promise is so important to be reminded of. It's a little different this Easter than it was 12 months ago, isn't it? I mean, last Easter, Josh and I were here. Uh, we were streaming. Our technology meant that we had to stream from the building. It's not that way now, but... Um, we had to be here at that sound booth right back there. I, I got up early. I don't know if you remember this or not, but last Easter, uh, it snowed, Easter morning. And uh, you stayed home, which was great for you. I got up and went to church. And Josh did too, and Cindy did too. So I, I was feeling just, you know, not good about it, much of anything. And uh, so I went to the donut shop. That's where I go when I feel not good about much of anything. <laughs> And got a dozen donuts just, just for me and Josh. I think Cindy got one maybe. And um, we just sat here, streamed, and ate our feelings all morning. And so this is a little different. And, you know, I, I don't know about you, but it feels, it feels good. And if, if you're anxious about being around this number of people, that's okay. You're not alone. A lot of people feel anxious about that as well because, you know, our people skills are a little rusty, you know. And so it's okay. Give yourself some grace, just some grace. The followers of Jesus, we, we call them disciples, that's the, that's the church Bible word, uh, they were a lot of different people. Uh, there were 12 that were kind of close to Jesus more than others, but there were three of those 12 that were even closer to Jesus than the others. It, only in this way, sometimes Jesus was with a smaller group of people, and who knows where the rest of them were, but Peter, James, and John were always hanging tight and of those three, there was one that was even closer, and his name was John, probably Jesus' best earthly friend, if we could say that, if we give it that, that category. And John wrote the story of Jesus, one of the Gospels. And when he begins to tell the story of the resurrection, he uses some pretty matter-of-fact language. Listen to what he says. Uh, the place of the crucifixion, of course we start there, was near a garden where there was a new tomb, never been used before. And so because it was the day of preparation for the Jewish Passover, and since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. And you, you wouldn't know that when you read this that John was so intimately close to Jesus that it sounds like he's just recounting some facts. When John writes this, it's probably two, three, maybe even four decades after all of these things happened. And John wants you to know the story. He wants you to understand it. But if you go back to when John and the disciples were following Jesus and all of this unfolded, there isn't one of them that would have ever dreamed in their wildest imagination that words like crucifixion would ever be associated with their friend, Jesus. They would have never dreamed it to be the case. I don't think we can comprehend how head spinning and how disorienting the crucifixion would have been for the followers of Jesus until the last 12 months. I think we have some idea of what it means to be so disoriented. 
maybe not as severe, but pretty severe. As I've pondered this Easter, knowing that we would come back together to some degree, I thought about how we would kind of re-engage in our life together. On Friday, on Good Friday, two days ago, I was at the incline over here at Miller Park. And half the reason I'm going to tell this story is just so I can say publicly that I was at the incline <laughs> on Miller, at Miller Park and I was uh, on the incline. Okay, that's what I'm saying. Do you follow me? I was on the incline. I got there and, and you know, I, I got to get ramped up for this. I don't want to be there. I don't like doing it. I hate doing it. Halfway up, I think, why did I do this? And then on the way down, I think, you know, that wasn't so bad. And I try again and halfway up, I think, this is a stupid, I just will never learn my lesson. So I'm maybe on step 10 and I look up ahead of me and Castle Rock Fire Department has come out to train <laughs> at the incline. And there are four men ahead of me and they are in full gear. I've got a buddy, neighbor, who's a firefighter up in Aurora, and he tells me that the gear that he wears, same as what Castle Rock wears, it weighs 90 pounds. Their coat, their pants, stuff under there, the pack on the back, and that's if they're not going into a high-rise. If they're going into a high-rise and have to take certain tools, it can be 120 pounds. And I'm looking up at these guys, and it's a warm day. You know, I got my T-shirt on, my shorts on. It's just feeling like spring. I'm loving life. And I look up at these guys, and I think, this is, this, that looks just horrible. I mean, this is what I think when I see them. This is what the last 12 months has been like for most of us. I mean, the incline's hard enough. Life is hard enough. Marriage, kids, school, finances, priorities, schedules, all of that is hard enough, but then throw 90 pounds on top of you. That's what the last 12 months has felt like for many of us. And if we're okay on a good day, maybe a good week or maybe a good stretch, we can think, this is good. I can do it. And then we just think, oh, it's just getting heavy. This is what it's been like for us. And as I've pondered my life and your life, all that we've been through, this is what I've concluded, that we've all been going through the same pandemic. In, in fact, this is true globally. So it's an unbelievable time in our history. We've all been going through the same pandemic, but our experiences have not been the same. You know this is true. We have some people in our church that have gone through the most unimaginable losses the most deeply personal, heartbreaking losses that you could even fathom. We have people who are dealing with financial insecurity, and there are other of us, uh, others of us in the room and listening online that don't know what it's like to miss a paycheck ever. We have folks that deal with anxiety. We have folks that deal with all kinds of issues that are a result of this same pandemic, but our experiences have not been the same at all. The, the extroverts among us are just withering. Any extroverts in the room? Let me see your hands, extroverts. You don't mind raising your hands. I know you're extroverts. <laughs> At the beginning of the pandemic, you know, all of our interactions have been, you know, localized to a few people. And we're all of a sudden finding ourselves isolated and alone. And extroverts, man, they get their, their joy and their life. Their souls are fed through interactions and you, you've been withering, and it's one of these casualties that we haven't talked about much. On the other hand, I mean, introverts are winning. <laughs> Aren't you introverts? They don't even want to admit it. They're so <laughs> introverted. They're like, I don't want anybody to know. Introverts have a little saying, there's no euphoria like canceled plans. 
That's what introverts think. And so they're through this pandemic, they're like, you know, can we extend this a little bit? Can we make this longer? And this is our pandemic, same. All been going through the same pandemic, but our experiences have not been the same at all. But even though our experiences have been different, we've all been dealing with the same thing. And we've just given it the word for this weekend, uncertainty. We don't know. We don't know what's around the corner. Uh, I mean, 12 months ago, we were naive and we thought we knew. And we thought, okay, here it comes. This will be over quick. In fact, when this first happened, lockdown-wise, we thought we'd be back by last Easter. And then three months later, we thought, ah, we're turning the corner. We're rounding third. And then all of a sudden, surges happen. And then riots. And then, you know, you know the story of the year. But all year long, we've thought, is it over? We think it's over. And then now we're afraid to let our guard down. I mean, don't you have a sense there's a little light at the end of the tunnel? Don't you feel like we're maybe wrapping up some of the most difficult times? And do you also feel like you're afraid to trust or believe that because you've been fooled? All year long. And that is uncertainty. And the truth is, we all react to this uncertainty in different ways. Based on our makeup or our personalities or our tendencies or how we deal with being hurt. We all respond to this uncertainty in a variety of different ways. And you've seen it in your family and with your friends. And you've probably even seen it in yourself. This uncertainty can bring about some anger for some of you. Maybe your go-to is fear or anxiety. and You just feel this stirred up anxiousness, maybe grief. All of these things are a part of it. I cannot imagine a better story than the resurrection story in the Gospels. For us. After the last 12 to 14 months to walk through and learn from, then this story that's in John and really all four of the Gospels that deal with uncertainty and every one of these emotions is named during the resurrection. Every one. This analogy might help. Let's just imagine that after church we're in the room and we're chatting and enjoying each other's company but I walk up to four of you individually one at a time and I just reach up and just slap you as hard as I can right across the face all four of you would react in very different ways wouldn't you I mean I let's just say I just did it to Josh at first I mean I'm his boss and what's he gonna say right and Josh's reaction when something goes wrong is, you know, it's probably me. I probably did. I mean, he'd probably look at me and say, I don't know what I did, but I probably deserve that. You know, that's what Josh would do. I mean, he's just that kind of humility, just who he is. Some of you just imagining me doing that know exactly what you would do. You wouldn't miss a beat. You would reach up and just crack me one back. You know, we're trading licks. That's what you thought we were doing, right? Some of you would sulk and some of you would cry. In fact, you would experience all of these things. And they're different for us. Your reactions are different than mine, but we've been through it. So did the people who experienced the very first Easter. Now, there's a side to Easter that we don't talk about much. There's a side to the Easter Chronicle, the story of what happens in the Gospels that I think we gloss over, but I can't think of a better year to point it out to you. And once you see it, you'll never be able to unsee it.
but it's right there in black and white. And so John tells the story of the resurrection. He starts in chapter 20. The verse I read about the crucifixion is the very end of 19. When he starts telling the story, he says this. Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. This is very first verse about the resurrection story, Sunday morning. Mary Magdalene was a disciple of Jesus. She had had an interesting life before she met Jesus, and Jesus welcomed her into the company of believers and followers and disciples, men and women who followed Jesus. And now she's showing up on Sunday morning to rewrap and rebury the body of Jesus. She's doing that because on Friday they were in a hurry. The sun was setting, the Jewish Sabbath was about to begin, and probably a few men did the job in a fairly sloppy way as men are apt to do. And so now some women are going to show up and make it right and take their time. And they brought spices, probably more cloths. Mary's probably not alone. And she shows up. When she gets some distance from the grave, she looks up and she sees that the stone's been rolled away. And she stops there at some distance. She just waits and she's not sure what is going on. She's afraid. Her assumption is somebody's taken the body, someone's stolen it. We don't know what's going on. So she turns around to go back and get help. And here's what she does. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, say it with me, the one whom, do you know who this was? was written by a man named John. He's the disciple we mentioned. And so we believe with certainty that this is John's little nickname for himself through the whole gospel, the one whom Jesus loved. How do you feel about that? Does that seem a little weird to you, a little cocky? I don't know if you have siblings, if you've ever said to your siblings, well, I'm the one mom and dad love and then got punched or kicked or this is what John says. In fact, John isn't named in his entire gospel by name at all. It's a glaring omission except to describe himself as the one whom Jesus loved. Now, first time I read this, I thought that seems a little, I don't know. I just don't like it much. The longer I've sat with it, And the more I've read his gospel, and then understanding that when John wrote this, he was kind of an old man. This was the last gospel written of the four. I love that he says it. John looks back on his life and he says, I don't know about you, but Jesus loved me. He loved me. Look, I don't know what's going to trip you up in your walk with God or in your life or your marriage or the path that you're on. But I guarantee you this, you will not be tripped up by thinking and understanding and believing that God loves you too much. That is not going to happen, I promise. Whatever you think about God's love, you think too little. Whatever you surmise his love might be, how much for you, to what degree, how deep, how wide, how intense, how real, how personable, how knowledgeable, whatever you presume about God's love, it is not enough. I tell you what will trip you up, thinking and believing that God is, I don't know, withdrawn from you, put you in time out, silently judging you. 
that will trip you up every time. Think about the times that you've gone astray, and I guarantee you that's connected to it is this sense that you're not good enough for God's love. And I love that John would say, I don't know, but I know this, God loves me. Whatever you think about God's love, I promise it's not enough. It's big enough for your failures. It's big enough for your doubts, your fears. It's big enough for every part of your life that you would keep hidden, but you know and deep down you understand that God sees it all. His love for you is bigger than you could ever ask, dream, or imagine. I promise. And I love that John says that. Now, one of the times I read this, I thought, you know, maybe he's just humble. Maybe he just doesn't want us to know his name, and so he throws this in. Well, I don't think that's the case, and it'll become clear in a minute why. So she ran and found two disciples, Simon and the one whom Jesus loved. And she said, they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. And so these two disciples, they take off. They start to run. Peter and the other disciple, which is who? The one whom Jesus loved, right? Started out running for the tomb. They were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I think this is absolutely unbelievable that John is writing about the resurrection of Jesus, this moment in history that time is divided by, the cataclysmic ultimate forgiveness offered to all of mankind, and he's very concerned that you would know that he's faster than Peter. <laughs> he's absolutely faster than Peter. Now, this would make sense if you think John's 21, 22, you know, cocky college kid or something like that, but he's not. He's an old man when he writes this. And he's thinking, I remember a lot of things about that day. But one of the things I remember is that I outran Peter. It was an emotional day, but I got there first. And he did. And when John got there first, he stooped and he looked in and he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. He stops, stones rolled away, and he looks in. Peter, probably out of breath with a side cramp or whatever else, he finally shows up. And when he shows up, he arrived and probably threw an elbow and went past John and went into the tomb. And he noticed the linen wrappings lying there while the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. There they are at the tomb. Stones rolled away. They're standing by it and they're trying to put all the pieces together and they're asking the question, same question you've asked many times over the last several months, what in the world is going on? I have no idea what is happening right now. Now, here's some context for you, okay? Just put this in your imagination and build it into the picture that you're remembering Jesus' ministry lasted about three years. About halfway into his ministry, he began preparing the disciples for this moment. And so he began to tell them, hey, just so you know, in a little while, down the road, we're going to go to Jerusalem. When we get to Jerusalem, I'm going to get arrested. And when I get arrested, I'm going to get beaten, and then they're going to crucify me. And then on the third day, I'm going to rise again. So I just want you to know that. I want you to know that ahead of time. 
And they would go, we don't want you to do that. And they would have some discussion and then they would move on and get on down the road and go somewhere else in Galilee. They were trying to stay away from Jerusalem because they all knew if they get near Jerusalem, the holy city, that the religious leaders are going to get all whipped up and it's going to happen. So Jesus stayed far away from Jerusalem for a good part of his ministry. And then he would say to the disciples again, maybe a week, maybe a month later, he would say, hey, just so you know, here's what's going to happen. We're going to go to Jerusalem. When we get there, I'm going to get arrested, and they're going to beat me, and then they're going to kill me. And on the third day, I'm going to rise again. I just want you to know that. And he did this over and over and over again. And it's in this context that Peter and John are standing outside an empty tomb, scratching their head and going, I don't know. What's going on? We have no idea how to put these pieces together. Peter and John run off to get some other buddies, disciples. They want to tell them what they found. Then Mary finally makes her way back to the tomb. Probably not alone, but we don't know. Mary was standing outside the tomb and she was crying. And as she wept, she stooped, same as John, and she looked in. But she didn't go in either, just like John. But when she looked into the tomb, well, you know, Jesus wasn't there, but it wasn't empty when she looked in. When she looked in, John tells us this. She saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. It's the way a tomb is created. There's a stone place to be laid for a dead body, wide enough and long enough. And so where Jesus would have been, there were two angels, one near the head of Jesus, one near the feet of Jesus, and they're just sitting, just hanging out in the tomb. And there they are. And they say, dear woman, why are you crying? The angels asked her. Now, even all the kids know the answer to this question in the room. I'm absolutely certain. What happens in Scripture? How do people feel when they encounter an angel? How do they feel? Afraid every time. Why? Well, they're imposing. I mean, they're not little cherubs like we think. I mean, they're imposing strong figures. And uh, you may have never seen one before. And they appear out of nowhere. And there's all kinds of reasons why you would be completely scared. Mary Magdalene is cold steel in this moment. I mean, Joseph was afraid. Mary was afraid. Everyone was afraid. Not Mary Magdalene. She just looks up and says, because... They've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they have put him. It's the oddest thing that ever happens in all the Gospels. She's face-to-face with two angels in the empty tomb of Jesus, and she doesn't miss a beat. Why? She's numb with grief. You can't believe what this woman has been through. She doesn't even see what's in front of her. She's so stricken with grief. Peter, John, trying to puzzle it out. Mary. Grief has just overcome her, so much so that she can see a couple of angels and just doesn't even phase her. A few days later, the disciples, most of them, minus one, they encounter the risen Jesus, and they have an experience with him, and they just, oh, they just can't believe it. Oh, yeah, that's what he said. He's going to come to Jerusalem and killed, and now he's alive again. The one that wasn't with him, his name was Thomas, and you know a little bit about Thomas. In fact, you know Thomas has a nickname, right? What's his nickname? 
Doubting Thomas. It's a cute little nickname, isn't it? Just, you know, if he can just get over his doubts, he'll be fine. This is what we think about Thomas. And so they go to Thomas and say, hey, by the way, we want you to know we saw Jesus. We saw him. This is how John records the, the part of the story. One of the 12, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the disciples, was not with the others when Jesus came. And they said, we've seen the Lord. We just want you to know. All those little rumors you've been hearing, they're true. We saw him, eyewitnesses, all of us. And Thomas says, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands and put my fingers into them and place my hand into the wound in his side. The last few years as I've read this, I see it a little bit differently than doubting Thomas. I mean, doubting Thomas. I get it. He doesn't believe. He needs to believe. What I read as I see these words is a man who's dealing with incredible anger. I mean, he's mad. What does he say? What's he want to do with his friend? He wants to poke his wounds. That's what he wants to do. And he's not saying it like, you know, prove it to me. He's saying it like, you're all liars, every one of you. I don't believe it in it a bit. There's no chance that that's the case. He is blind with rage. Here's how I know that. You might remember that about two weeks before this happened, Jesus was far away from Jerusalem and he got word that his friend Lazarus was sick. Do you remember this part of the story? just a couple weeks before the crucifixion. And so Jesus says to his disciples, oh, we need to head toward Jerusalem. You remember what he's been telling them, what happens when they get toward Jerusalem. And so the disciples get all nervous. They need to come to Jerusalem because Mary and Martha and Lazarus, well, they live in a little town called Bethany and it's just right outside the holy city. And so now the disciples are getting nervous and scared. But Thomas isn't scared. Thomas is ready to take on Rome, for goodness sakes. Here's what Thomas says. Thomas, nicknamed the twin, said to his fellow disciples, this is way back in John 11, but only two weeks before the crucifixion, he says to his fellow disciples, let's go to, and what? Die with Jesus, is what he says. Thomas thinks he's a part of a revolution, and he's a th he thinks that they're going to kick Herod off the throne and overtake the holy city. When Thomas believes he's a part of a revolution, he is all in. He's got his sword, he's got his bag, and he's ready to fight. But now that he watched his rabbi, leader, and friend die a criminal's death, he is so angry, he can't even see straight. And he says, there's no way that's true. And all I want to do is poke his wounds. That's all I want to do. Look, I know, Easter Sunday, and it feels like maybe we're turning the corner in this thing and life might get back to normal. But before we go there and before you start adding things back into your life that have been subtracted, maybe not even by your own choice, I feel like there's a part of Easter that we need to see a little bit differently. There's a, a side to this Easter story that we ignore because we believe, and rightfully so, that the resurrection fixes everything. And that's absolutely true. If it weren't for new life and the possibility of resurrection, then we would be like all people and just grieve without hope. And the resurrection is the key corner piece of our faith. And it teaches us that when we experience death, we can count on new life on the other side of it. And that is absolutely true. 
But some of the things you and I have been through over the last 12 months, it can absolutely feel like we're not sure what we want to take or what we want to leave behind. We're not sure what we want to keep or what we want to set aside. I mean, some of the disciples were going through the exact same thing that you're going through. It can feel like your whole life is a bit of a yard sale, right? Like you're going to throw some things out on the yard and see who wants what and let them come get it. What are you going to keep dear, practice, engage with? Friendships, job, priorities, church, your walk with God. What's it going to look like on the other side of all of this? And what you and I need to understand is that that was true for everyone who had experienced Easter. I mean, this is the part that we ignore and that we don't see. Don't miss this. Look, the tomb is empty. The tomb is empty in the story that we've been reading. The stone is rolled away and Jesus isn't there. But Peter is puzzled and withdrawn. And Mary Magdalene, she's completely blinded by grief. She doesn't even see the angels, really. And Thomas is so blind with rage, he's obstinate and he's angry. And when I think about their experience with Easter and our experience over the last 12 months, I think that I could put my name in front of any one of these statements and it would be true. I wonder if you could as well. Maybe one draws you more than the others, but maybe you found yourself ping-ponging back and forth by a few of these things. And this is even after Jesus has been resurrected. It's true. The resurrection does fix everything. But even though it's fixed it, and even though we know that new life springs from a tomb that brought death, we can also see very clearly that even on the other side of it, Peter and Mary Magdalene and Thomas and really all the disciples, well, it wasn't like everything was fixed instantly. They had a journey to take. And that path, there is a path from all of these places to wholeness and trust and light and new life. There is a path to all of that. And we'll talk about that next week. We had to do that, right? You got to come back next week or listen next week or you know, watch online next week. That's absolutely true. But what I want you to know are a few very important things before we finish today. And the first is this. If you felt any of these things lately or even today or even in the days to come, you're in good company. These are good people. Know Jesus, walk with him, believe in the power of the resurrection. Peter and Mary Magdalene and Thomas and even beyond that, James and John and Bartholomew and Thaddeus and eventually Paul, the apostle, you're in good company. It's normal to feel all of these things. And if you've been feeling them, know that God's love is enough for you and that God can meet you in this place and he will guide you down a new path, a new place. If you've felt any of this, no, you're in, new comp- you're in good company and this is quite normal. Then there's one other thing that I want you to know, I don't want you to miss, that if you have found yourself in a place like that, Jesus meets every one of these people right where they are and he takes them to a new, a new spot, a new place. He meets them right where they are. In the very next chapter, maybe you've read it, John 21, Jesus fixes Peter some breakfast and 
And even though Peter has denied Jesus time and time and time again, God welcomes him back in. Jesus' love, open arms. Two angels are enough for Mary Magdalene to believe that Jesus is alive again. And so what happens? Well, in the very next verse, Jesus shows up in the flesh and says, Mary, it's me. I'm alive. I'm here. It's going to be okay. And that's the very thing that God is saying to some of you right now. I know uncertainty looms large, but I'm here and I'm with you. And you know what he does with Thomas, right? Thomas, who's so angry and wants to poke his wounds. Eight days after this happens, Thomas is there with the disciples and they're in an upper room, a place just hiding because they're full of fear. Jesus shows up unexpectedly in that room. John even mentions that the door's locked, so Jesus didn't come in like a normal person. He just showed up. And he says to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. What's he saying to Thomas? You're angry? It's okay. Work it out with me. You wanted to poke my wounds? Poke away. What? Yep, slap it. Go ahead. It's okay. You're angry with God? He's not angry with you back. You're upset with God? He understands it. He's meeting you right there. And he'll do that. Why? Because his love for you is that strong, that much, that deep, that intimate, and that intense. So what does he say to Thomas when this happens? He says, then Jesus told him, you believe because you've seen me. He's not just talking to Thomas. Every one of the disciples that believes, they only believe because they'd seen Jesus, except for John. John had begun to put the pieces together. But then he says this about me and about you. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. This is why Jesus gave us experiences like communion, which we'll take together. If this is your first experience with us during uh, or since COVID uh, with communion, you have in front of you, uh, and if you're on the front row, then some folks will walk by and give you communion. But right in front of you, right in the seat tray underneath, down near your toes, is a little packet of communion. It's about yay big, like a big thimble. It's not very big, but you can pick it up right now and hold it. And some folks are walking around with some trays, and they'll serve the rest of you the same type of communion. It's very touchless and clean experience. When you peel back that first top, there'll be a little piece of bread representing the body of Jesus. And you can hold that and have it ready. And then underneath that is another little layer. And underneath that layer is the juice, which represents the blood of Jesus. And so how appropriate that we as a community, that we come back together like this, and those of you online know that we recognize that you are with us as well in spirit and that God transcends geography every time. This is why you've been worshiping with us throughout COVID. That Jesus took the bread and he held it up and he said, this is my body and it's broken for you. 
And then he passed it and he said, take and eat. So if you're online and watching, if you're in this room, you can do that now. We receive the body of Christ and we, we eat it, representing that we consume him. He becomes part of us and lives within us. And then he took the cup in the same way after dinner and as it was poured, he said, this cup represents a new covenant. What's in it represents my blood and it's poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. So the disciples passed that cup around and they drank from it. And as they did so with the body and the blood, just a few days before the resurrection of Jesus, just the night before he would be killed on the cross, they would never eat this meal again without thinking about the death, the burial, and the resurrection. And cemented in their heart and their mind is the truth that I can doubt and I can fear and I can be in a place where I'm not even sure what I want to believe anymore, but God will take me through the darkest valley and he'll lead me to a place where his love overwhelms me and I trust him again. And so Lord, now as we partake in this meal and we reflect on these words, we ask that we would receive them as the gifts of God for the people of God. So as we receive now this body of Jesus, the symbol of the blood of Jesus, we are proclaiming the truth that Jesus was killed on a Friday and placed in a tomb, but on Sunday morning, his lifeless body came back to life, conquering death and freeing us from the slavery of the fear of death. And together, we proclaim this truth. And so right now, as you have taken communion, or you will in just a moment, as you reflect and ponder, we proclaim this truth in what we do and experience and in the lyrics that we will sing in just a moment and in the fact that we are even present today and alive and breathing, that God is not done with you yet. May he work through us to accomplish his purpose.